So we start off here, you know, in verse 14, and it says, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. So the very first question we should ask ourselves in reading this verse is, why? Why would they send Peter and John once this had taken place? And the answer is because this was big. This was massively huge. Samaritans are part of this. Samaritans are part of the chosen people of God. Remember last sermon, I described from history the disdain the Jews had for the Samaritans. And now they're part of this. They're part of the people of God. So this is huge to the church at Jerusalem. The mother church in Jerusalem wanted to see if this was legit, whether this was true, whether they had genuinely been converted to the faith that this gospel is truly for all men. So they send Peter and John, the two biggies, there to Samaria. What they determined would have a huge impact upon the future of the church and the unity within the church. Remember, the Jews are learning this gospel of Jesus Christ is for all peoples, tribes, and tongues, not just for the Jews. And they would be stretched further in the days ahead. In fact, let's just take a peek at chapter 11. Because not only was this gospel going to be for the Samaritans, but it was going to go to the ends of the earth. It was going to be for the Gentiles also. And this was a big deal to the Jewish mindset. This was stretching them to believe this, to accept this. And in chapter 11, it says, because all of chapter 10 and all of chapter 11 are about how the Gentiles received the gospel. And it says in chapter 11, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them? They're like, You took the gospel to those people? All right, so this is... You have to understand, this was big, that the Samaritans had accepted Christ. Because they had a disdain for the Samaritans. They were thinking this is a Jewish deal. You know, it's our temple, you know, and now it's our Jesus, you know. Verse 4 says, But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance, and I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. God does this whole thing to show them that the gospel is available to the Gentiles also. And verse 12 says, Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing, these men, taking him to Cornelius. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me. So he's got witnesses. And we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. So this is the working of God in the lives of men. And as I began to speak, Peter says, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us, 
when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So do you see? This is a huge thing. The Jews were thinking this is our little deal. It ain't for the Samaritans, and it definitely ain't for the Gentiles. It's for us. So this was a massive deal that was going on in Samaria, them receiving the gospel, and so Peter and John come down to see whether this is legit or not. And we too need to understand this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people. No one, no nationality of people, no ethnicity of people, no language of a certain kind, of no people are beyond his reach. His gospel is for all men. Every peoples, every tribe, every tongue. It's available to all. We may think when we see a certain person out on the streets or something like that, oh, they're so far gone, there's no hope for them. Right? God says, no. Our duty is is to make him known to men. To point them to Jesus Christ. Call them to repentance of their sin and faith in Jesus. Amen? We can have our stereotypes that we think... This person's beyond hope. That's not a Christian thought. The Christian mindset is that person needs Christ. I need to declare him to them. Verse 15 reveals that they were convinced of the legitimacy of the Samaritans' conversion. Because look what happens in verse 15. It says, Who, when they had come, Peter and John, come down, prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. The only reason they're praying for them to receive the Holy Spirit is because they view their conversion as legitimate. They would not have laid hands on them if they did not view it as legitimate. And look what verses 16 and 17 go on to say. For as yet he, the Spirit, had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. By the way, I once had someone try to tell me that the Holy Spirit is a she. And the truth of the matter is, it's either um, a masculine pronoun, like it's interpreted here, he, or it's the neuter. It's never the female pronoun. All right? For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now let us pause here and ask ourselves, what is going on? Why would they need to be asked if they received the Spirit if they were already believers? Why would they need to be asked if they received the Spirit if they had already believed? Don't we receive the Spirit when we believe in Jesus? Is that not biblical truth? When we believe in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit at that time. That is biblically correct. We do. Galatians 3, 2 Paul says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Right? The hearing of the gospel and believing it. When you believe in Christ, that's when you receive the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says, in whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We receive the Holy Spirit when we believe in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 9 says this, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. You have the Spirit when you believe in Jesus. So what's going on here? Why would they need to be asked if they received the Spirit if they were already believers? Why this separation between believing in Christ and receiving the Spirit? You see the subsequent time frame there? This separation between believing in Christ and receiving the Spirit, by the way, is why Catholics do confirmation at age 14. Because they believe that is when you receive the Holy Spirit at the confirmation ceremony. And this is a passage they use to support their belief. That it's a subsequent matter to believing, to salvation. And this is where the Pentecostals and Charismatics get their baptism of the Holy Spirit teaching. That there is a subsequent work of the Holy Spirit after believing in Jesus. We reject the Catholic Confirmation teaching as nonsense. We see the subsequent work of the Holy Spirit, Pentecostal view, as a viable biblical belief. However, some Pentecostals and Charismatics say you have not the Holy Spirit till you are baptized in the Spirit and speak in tongues. This we reject as unbiblical. But we really don't have to consider any of these beliefs. None of these beliefs are necessary to explain what is happening here. Our answer to the question, why this separation between believing in Christ and receiving the Spirit here in this narrative, Acts chapter 8, is twofold. Number one, this was so big, the gospel moving out from Jewish terrain to the Samaritans, that the approval of Peter and John in the Jerusalem church was needed for all to agree that this is legit, that the Samaritans have truly come to know Christ, that the gospel is for them. And secondly, it also allowed the church officials, so to speak, from Jerusalem, to be involved in the process, further assuring their seeing the conversion of the Samaritans as legitimate in the eyes of all. This was like similar to when the Spirit was first poured out in Acts 2. The separation of receiving the Spirit from initial believing, like what we saw in Acts 2, this is similar to that time. Because all of a sudden it's left the realm of Jerusalem and Judea, the Jews, and it's gone into another area known as Samaria. So that's what we say about that. Or at least what I say about that. But this laying on of hands and receiving the Holy Spirit did cause a problem. Caused a problem. Verses 18 through 24. Let's read that. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. 
Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Remember in my sermon last week, we talked about how the gospel is iconoclastic. It topples idols. It smashes idols, the gospel does. And we saw it in the life of this man, Simon, who was viewed as the power of God before the apostles came with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some say this reveals that Simon's conversion, talked about in the passage that we looked at last week, you know, that he too believed and was baptized, verse 13. Some say this reveals that Simon's conversion was not genuine. Others say it does not mean that. I find it amazing how people always get caught up with whether someone is saved or not. I always find that odd to me. Somebody does something odd or somebody does something of an unchristian nature who claims the name of Christ and immediately, they can't be a Christian. The whole thing becomes, are they saved or are they not saved? I've seen spouses do this to each other. It's insane. Why would people... We all suck to some extent. We all sin, right? We all have shortcomings and things that are unchristlike about our character, right? I mean, I always... As someone's naming the name of Christ, I always relate with them on the basis of a Christian. And if they're doing something wrong, I appeal to them to correct their behavior because they're a Christian. I don't think you could be a Christian. I've even seen people do that to their own kids. You can't be a Christian. you know. And then their kids end up walking away from Christ and Christianity because of that awful demeanor and behavior of the parent. You know, you can't be a Christian. You know. Anyway, this is crazy. Crazy to me anyway. Frankly, I do not see why this would mean Simon's conversion was not genuine. Having been birthed into Christ's kingdom among Pentecostal people, talking about myself, I was birthed into the kingdom in an Assembly of God church, Pentecostal, okay? I spent the first 10 years of my conversion in that realm of Christianity. And I can tell you I saw many who knew Christ but thought just like Simon. (laughs) Thought just like Simon here, okay? They wanted the sensational gifts. And laying hands on someone and they receiving the Holy Spirit would fit in that category. That's pretty sensational. Notice what verses 21 and 22 say. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Right right in the sight of God regarding what? Regarding this matter of wanting to buy the Holy Spirit. You know, this power so you can give people the Holy Spirit by laying hands on them. Verse 22, repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your your heart may be forgiven. Right? Notice verse 22 says nothing about you're not saved or you need forgiveness of your sins. Right? Rather it talks about this your wickedness, this situation, how he's acting here in this matter and pray that perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Peter didn't call him to repentance to get forgiveness of his sins as you would when someone isn't saved. He called upon him for forgiveness regarding this matter. 
Now, none of the people I knew who wanted power and to be seen of men as some great man of God ever offered money to get it, like Simon did here in verse 18. But they coveted it. (laughs) They wanted it really bad. They coveted it because that form of Christianity, Pentecostalism, charismatic people, they coveted it because that form of Christianity held such things in high view. So one was seen as spiritual if they possessed such power. And many of the things that go on in those types of churches are just learned behaviors. Okay? By the way, I believe that God still works in these ways in the affairs of men, in miraculous ways, that the gifts of the Spirit are still for... Speaking in tongues is still for today. All that. I don't believe any of that has ceased in that regard. But I do know there's a lot of phony stuff going on there too. And a lot of it is just learned behavior. Nonsense. Alright? As you grow in Christ, such thinking wanes. This thinking of, I want to be viewed as spiritual by everybody else. I want to be able to be like that evangelist and go like that with my hand. And the whole section of the choir falls over. You know? That's really how they think. You know? And it's like, ooh. You know, as you grow in Christ, such thinking wanes. You realize he must increase, I must decrease. Amen. You see how the arrogance of man is so pervasive, it can even take quote-unquote spiritual things to aggrandize itself. That's how pervasive the arrogance and pride of man is. As you grow in Christ, you do not want men to think well of you. Rather, you want men to think well of Him. You realize you are people of the name, and you have the grave duty to not shame His name and to take suffering upon yourself because of His name. That's how your thinking develops as you mature in Christ. Finally, notice what Peter says in verse 23, because Peter Really lobbed the guy's head off pretty good here, right? He wanted to nip this in the bud, you know, like Barney Fife. Nip it in the bud. He didn't want this thinking spreading amongst the Samaritans. Verse 23 says, For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Now, I've even read, um, you know, medical journals where they talk about the impact of bitterness upon one's very blood. And, the, and it literally releases a poison within the chemical makeup of one's body, this matter of bitterness. Now, why would Simon be bitter? Why, why would Peter point that out to Simon when, when he says, I see that you are poisoned by bitterness? The reason that was very likely that Simon would have been poisoned with bitterness is because he had been knocked off the totem pole, so to speak. Remember back in verse 10? Simon was the guy to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And Peter and Philip comes in and the gospel, the gospel message and just annihilates that idol. Simon being the idol. Everybody thinking he is the great power of God. 
The gospel, again, is iconoclastic. By the way, I had several people tell me after the sermon last week they had to go look that word up. So if you weren't here last week, yeah, you can feel free to Google that. So he has been knocked off the totem pole. That idol of him being this great power of God has been smashed. He harbored some bitterness about that, Peter says. That's what Peter says. He's harboring bitterness. But that doesn't mean he wasn't saved. i got to tell you, I've known tons of Christians who are very bitter people, but they know Christ. Bitterness is something you must wage war against. You must not allow it to seize you and overtake you. The Scriptures are so ardent about this that it talks about the fact of not going to bed angry at night until you've resolved the matter with whoever it is you're angry with. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's how huge of a deal it is. We have to defend ourselves against bitterness. And one of the things that helps defend ourselves against it is understanding that we have fellowship with Christ in His sufferings. People are going to do bad things to you. Wicked people will do that. People who name the name of Christ hurts a million times more when they do it. And it's something you can allow. The Scriptures call it a root. Because that's how it starts out. Just a root of bitterness. But that root grows if you don't crush it. If you don't slap it down to the ground, it grows. You must forgive in your heart. Even if they haven't asked for forgiveness, you must forgive in your heart. You must understand that Christ, who never sinned, look how he was spoken of, look how he was treated. Right? Did he become bitter? No. He suffered. And so we must suffer. Suffering is part of the Christian life. If you don't think so, you're going to be an awfully irritated, annoyed, frustrated person. And I know American Christianity wants us to believe that our walk with the Lord should be a bed of roses with a tinted windshield on the Lexus, lattes every morning and all that kind of stuff. You know, never a flat tire because that's true persecution. But the truth of the matter is, suffering comes with Christianity. And sometimes the most awful suffering we come from encounter is from those brothers and sisters who name the name of Christ. And that bitterness must be guarded against. It must be put down. Because if once you become bitter, you become useless to the kingdom of God. If you make it through all that and don't become bitter, you become that more useful in the hands of God. It's a massively important deal. So, whether Simon's conversion was genuine or not, those guys can keep on debating it. I don't see any reason to say that it wasn't. And um, I don't think they've proven that his conversion was not legitimate. Look what verse 25 says. So when they had testified, who's they? Peter and John. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. This shows how legit the conversion of the Samaritans was. 
that Peter and John preached all through Samaria. And all the Jews back in Jerusalem knew that. So these guys are all in. The gospel goes beyond Judea and us Jews. The Samaritans are in. What Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that they should take this gospel to Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, had now been fulfilled. The gospel's been taken to the Samaritans. And what else did he say? To the end of the earth. And that will be seen in chapters 10 and 11 when they finally get it that the gospel's for the Gentiles too. In fact... Luke decides to give them a little foretaste of this in his continued account of Philip and the Samaritans here in chapter 8. He throws in the conversion of an Ethiopian eunuch, probably a proselyte to Judaism, because he's sitting around reading the book of Isaiah. Look at what it says here in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Gaza is about 50 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So you understand that Luke is putting together vignettes. It isn't like he may have been in Samaria and he came down that way. He may have been in Jerusalem. This happened at some other time. And he's throwing this in to give them a foretaste of the fact that this thing even is going to go beyond the Samaritans, this gospel message. And notice what it says here in verse 26. It says, this is, a, this is desert. It's almost as short as, you know, Jesus wept, you know. This is desert. That that like that was like a beacon to me. You know? This is desert. Have you ever had God ask you or you felt him wanting you to do something? To go a certain way, to tell a certain person, and you know, I'm not a mystical person, right? But I do know God, and there are times where he leads us, gives us unctions to do certain things and whatnot. And you think, boy, that's dumb. That can't be God, <laughs> right? Because you got it all figured out so well, right? And, um, and I'm thinking to myself, I've had this where God, I felt like he wanted me to go somewhere where I was just like, that's really dumb, like going to a desert. <laughs> you know, it's like, who would be out there? You know, some geckos, you know, and, you know, whatever other lizards live in the desert, why Why would I go to the desert, you know? Why wouldn't I go to the Colosseum where there's thousands of people who need to hear the gospel? Why would I go out in the middle of a desert, God? You know what I'm saying? So when I saw that this is desert, <laughs> it's like there's a reason Luke put that in there, right? Why God in his providence had that part of his written word. The truth of the matter is, the Lord may send you off the beaten path for just one soul. He may. And that's what's happening with Philip here. Because he, he obeys. And it says in verse 27, So he arose and went. How simple is that? And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, had charge of all her treasury. So this guy's way up. 
You don't put just some schmuck in charge of the treasury. This is an important person who you highly trust. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. Now the ancient kingdom of Ethiopia lay between Aswan and Khartoum and corresponds with present-day Nubia. So this eunuch was in all likelihood a black man. And he's sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah. This is the one soul that the Lord wanted Philip to speak with that he sent him out in the middle of a desert. And Philip obeys. Verse 29 says, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. Okay, so the chariot's moving. The dude's sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah. So think about this. Philip is running next to the chariot. It's probably just, the horse is probably just walking. It's not like they're in a full gallop. But Philip has to like be moving. Hey! (laughs) You ever have a time where, you know, you sense God wants you to speak to someone? And you think of a million reasons, well, or you put little fleeces before God. Well, if he turns left up this aisle, you know, then I'll, I'll intervene with him and I'll talk to him there, God. Okay, maybe you don't think like that, but Matchwella does. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you know, there's times where you can be a little scaredy cats. You know what I mean? <laughs> to present the gospel to people who feel God wants us to. Philip isn't like that at all. He's going to get this guy the word of the Lord. He's literally running next to the chariot to talk with him. The Spirit says to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? (laughs) The thing's probably still moving when he's saying this. And he said, How can I? unless someone guides me. And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. Maybe he just put his arm out and pulled Philip up into it, right? The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers silent. So he opened not his mouth and his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Amen? This account strikes amazingly similar to the account of the two disciples who met Jesus on the road to to Emmaus. Remember that? Luke is the only one out of the gospel writers who records the road to Emmaus. And here we have a very similar story regarding Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch who is obviously a God-fearer and is hungry to know, know the Lord. The road to Emmaus. Let's look at that real quick. Turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And I want to read to you verses 13 through 27. It says, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, 
And they talked together of all these things which had happened. Talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, Besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter his glory? And beginning, verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You can go through Old Testament scripture and see how it points to Christ. Jesus spoke of it with these two disciples of himself. Philip did it with this Ethiopian eunuch here on the road to Gaza. Verse 36 says, Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized them. He baptized them. He baptized the eunuch. And this is what Christ has called us to do, to make him known to men, just as Philip the evangelist was doing here. We're to tell others about Christ. How many days have gone by where you don't tell anyone? That's not good. You should be walking with literature in your hands or in your pockets. You can distribute literature that points men to the Lord. You can also talk with them. Speak with people. It's massively important that you do. Don't worry that you're not Ravi Zacharias and you can't answer every question that someone might throw at you. Just be faithful and true to Christ. He will give you the words to say. Understand? We should be like Philip. It says in verse 39, Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing, taking the gospel back to Ethiopia. This Greek word here, caught away, It connotes the fact that 
both there was a forceful and sudden action by the Spirit and a lack of resistance by Philip. He says, suddenly take. And he takes him off to the next place to talk to someone about the Lord. And it says in verse 40, Philip was found at Azotus, which is probably Ashdod, which was north of Gaza. And passing through, he preached in all the cities. And this is the position I believe we should all take as Christian people. We don't have to have God tell us, go talk to this person or go talk to that person, although he does that. We should want to talk to all people, right? And there should only be a time when we don't when he says not to. And there are times when he'll tell you not to. There's times he told the apostles, we continue in the book of Acts, where he told them, don't go there. But if he doesn't tell you, don't go there, if you're, you know, or if it's one of those things where you know you got to go tell this one certain person, everybody else is open game. We should be telling every, he went, Philip says, scripture says, Philip passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. And what do you remember from last week's sermon about Philip and Caesarea? It's where he spent the rest of his life, in most likelihood. Chapter 22 of Acts, remember? He was living in Caesarea, and Paul came there by him. And he had four virgin daughters who prophesied, right? Philip spent the rest of his life bringing the gospel to the Samaritans. God may want you to spend the rest of your life bringing the gospel to the Milwaukeeans or to the New Berliners you know, or whatever. He may want you to go overseas to Mogadishu. You know? He may want you to go to France. But he wants all of us as his people to make him known to men. That is one of the things you always see, whether you read scripture or the writings of the early church, This was common to all Christians. They were his witnesses, and they made him known to men. And I can assure you, the vast majority of American Christians do not regularly tell people about Jesus. In fact, studies that have been done show that over 90% of those who name the name of Christ in born-again, Bible-believing churches have never shared the gospel with anyone, according to George Barno. And I believe it because how often has someone come up to you to share the gospel with you? How many pieces of literature have you found as you've gone through your day pointing men to Christ? It's rare. It's a huge rarity, is it not? So we know that most aren't doing it. And we must. We must. Let's stand up. We'll close in a word of prayer.